self it battles with the selfless The self is dangerous on its own Sometimes it walks off lost and lonely Put it with God and it's at home Well you can't say that you're alright now Go dress it up in new age clothes But what will happen when you put it with another Will you come or bring yourself to blows Will you come or bring yourself to blows Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to be able to welcome to the programme Russ Wise, who is Vice President of Christian Information Ministries based in Dallas, Texas, where he serves as the resident specialist in new religious movements. He's worked in this area of ministry for over 30 years, having spent 20 years on the staff of Probe Ministries. And in the course of his ministry, which is centered really in helping people develop a biblical worldview in this modern context and in educating people about the dangers of movements that distort biblical teaching. Mr. Wise has been published very widely and he continues to speak and teach across the US and uh, is even a guest here in the UK at times. So um, Mr. Wise, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be with you today. Thank you, and I understand that you're actually coming to England in a couple of days from now, so that seems quite ironic to having this conversation now across the Atlantic, but uh, that's the way things go. Is it, is it um, pleasure or is it business? A little bit of both, a little business speaking in Bristol and then pleasure, the balance of the fortnight we're there. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you're uh, going to be going to the area of Salisbury at a certain point during this trip. I'm saying that because that's very close to the area where I was brought up. Been to Salisbury a couple of times before, of course, Stonehenge, and then uh, the other sites in the area. And then, of course, the Magna Carta at the cathedral is is a draw. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I wanted to have the opportunity to speak with you because over the years, you've taken quite an interest in that highly influential religious phenomenon called A Course in Miracles, which was begun by a lady called Helen Shukman back in the 1960s. But although it's back in the 1960s, it's very much with us today, having been heavily promoted by people like Oprah Winfrey. And you've been concerned to evaluate that teaching from a Christian perspective, looking to see to what extent those teachings actually agree with the teachings of Jesus. And, uh, of course, the claim was by Helen Shukman that this course was actually given to her by Jesus himself. And uh, you reached the conclusion that it doesn't fit in very many ways with the teachings of Jesus. And so we'll get into the background and the analysis of that in a few moments. But I'm interested, first of all, to find out a little bit more about you and your work. So could you tell us something about your background and how you got into this ministry of researching and lecturing on new religious movements? It's quite fascinating, quite by the back door. I've always been interested in biblical teaching and better understanding why people think the way they do, how they view reality. But a number of years ago, after becoming a Christian, my mid-twenties, I began being disturbed by those who would teach in opposition to what Scripture actually taught. So I began looking at different things. You know, what what makes uh, one belief system different than Christianity? 
of course, a lot of the teaching was at the time, uh, all religions are the same. It's just a matter of how they're perceived. So I began to question that. And so in looking at that, I began to realize that, no, Christianity is quite unique and different. And of course, the primary difference between Christianity, of course, we just celebrated Easter recently, uh, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. No other religious leader in the history of mankind has performed such an event or feat. Along that time, I have a sister just older than myself who went through a personal upheaval, and as a result, she began studying the occult, eventually becoming a white witch. And of course, you know, you hear of black magic, white magic. Of course, she was a white witch because she wanted to do good things, having been brought up in the church in a marginal way. She sought those who would help instruct her in white witchcraft, and that is the healing arts, divining information. She was very big in writing astrological charts for people and so forth, divining information, divining their future. She was involved in white witchcraft for about a dozen or so years, and so during that time, it was very troubling to me. And so I began trying to reach out to her and help her understand that what you're involved in is not Christian in nature whatsoever. Just about every four or five, maybe six months, she would go into something different. She would go into one aspect of the New Age or witchcraft or another, but she always maintained her, her Wiccan position. And that's the thing about people in the occult world is that they're not caught up in any one aspect of it. It's a number of things, anywhere from two to three to a half a dozen or even more different aspects of the occult or witchcraft that they're engaged in. And, of course, every time she would go into a different genre of the occult, I would study that to build an apologetic or a defense against that particular teaching from a biblical perspective or understanding. And so after a dozen years, she ended up at the point where she said, Russ, I finally found the truth. I found it. I thought, well, what's that? You know, what does she mean by that? And she, what she meant was that she finally discovered one of the mind science groups Unity School of Christianity. And it took her about two years to recognize that it was fallacious as well. And that's when she came to the point where she would listen to me when I asked her questions like, who do you say Jesus is? And that's when she began to say, well, Russ, which Jesus are you talking about? And I would answer that I'm speaking of the only begotten Son of God, the Jesus of the Bible. And she said, oh, Russ, don't be so naive. There are many Jesuses out there. It's just a matter of who you want to follow. So I pointed her to Matthew 24, verse 20 through 24, where the gospel writer mentions that there are many Christs, many messiahs, many false teachers who would claim messiahship or that they are Jesus, but not to be deceived. And so she was being deceived by false Christs. And of course, Matthew 24 tells us also that there are many false Christs who would deceive even the elect. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, from the biblical perspective, even they, that would be you and myself and, and some of your listeners, I'm sure, would come to a place to where uh, they might find themselves in error as well. That's why we need to stay very close to scriptural teaching. And that's where A Course in Miracles came into play because it was purported by Helen Shuckman to be spoken to her over a number of years by the person of Jesus himself. And I found it interesting that the Jesus that she was listening to, this voice, everything that this Jesus taught from a 
teaching or a doctrinal position was diametrically opposed to what the Jesus of the scriptures of the Bible itself taught. So that piqued my interest to study and learn more. Yeah. So your background then, to put it in summary, I suppose, would be that uh, you became interested in this because you were trying to help your sister. You you developed um, a whole list of apologetics, really, because of that. One of these was, of course, in miracles. Was she herself interested in that? She was not specifically, although she certainly would have at some point because she was inclined in that direction. But it came along a little after she came to Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. So before we get into any detail about A Course in Miracles itself, um, you've already said that obviously this is something that we should be concerned about for various reasons, but I wonder if you could first of all give us an impression of just how influential this course has become, because I I mentioned at the beginning that Oprah Winfrey had introduced this to many people on her show many years ago, um, and uh, I believe she did this through endorsing the work of Marianne Williamson. So could you tell us something about how popular this has become and, and how that's happened? Well, Oprah Winfrey was the the blockbuster for Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson was was largely unknown. She at the time lived in Warren, Michigan, and she was a unity minister, a minister of the Unity School of Christianity Fellowship there in Warren, Michigan. She was highly steeped in this whole worldview, this genre of New Ageism. She taught A Course in Miracles, among other things. And then when she went on Oprah Winfrey, after she wrote the book A Return to Love, her book caught Oprah Winfrey's eye, and Oprah had Marianne Williamson on her program. And Marianne Williamson's written other books since then, but but this is the primary text that she used to introduce A Course in Miracles to her reading audience. And Oprah Winfrey fell in love with Marianne Williamson's philosophy and worldview and ideas. And at that time, Oprah bought a thousand or more copies of Marianne's book to give to her audiences. And of course, Marianne Williamson's credibility just went through the roof. And so this whole idea began to spread throughout uh, the United States and elsewhere. And I speak on university campuses on occasion. And, And a number of years ago, I was in West Texas at Lubbock at Texas Tech University. And I was speaking on the New Age in some religion classes. And so I went into the local occult bookstore just off campus, walked in the door, and they had this huge display of A Course in Miracles. And so I asked the the young woman uh, who happened to be a co-ed working there in the store, surely there must be some sessions taught here in Lubbock because you have such an inventory. She said, oh, yes. And I said, well, are any taught by chance in uh, in churches and anywhere, you know, maybe unity or what have you? She says, yes, and there's one at Second Baptist Church here in Lubbock. I say, yeah. And I said, well, I wonder, wow, that's inter- interesting. I wonder, is the pastor aware of that? And she says, no, no, I don't believe so. It's just, it's a discreet study taught by women in the church. You know, a lot of what's going on within Christian churches may or may not be endorsed by the church leadership at large, including the pastor, but done clandestinely by small groups within the church who who may or may not have any discernment whatsoever. And if I had a chance to dig and research into that further, if I had a chance to meet with those women and interview them, I would I would not at all be surprised if a number of them had not been introduced to the course by watching Oprah Winfrey. Here in America, elsewhere across the globe, during that time, 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women would queue into uh, Oprah Winfrey's program on a daily basis and be highly influenced by what she taught and people that she had on her program. Yes, indeed. Yes, it's, I mean, there's nothing about the course which is specific to women, as you say. It's the, the fact that they would tend to be the audience that were tuning into that particular program. And uh, it's interesting that the course itself uses a lot of Christian terminology, so I suppose that's one of the reasons why it's able to creep in underneath the door unnoticed. Absolutely, because those who, who lack discernment, if it looks good, sounds good, and they're using the right jargon and terminology, then they're okay. I kind of re- refer to it as, you know, people turn their meter off. And so we have this discernment meter. And when people begin using Christian jargon, if they quote scripture, uh, a lot of times we just automatically turn our meter off. In other words, we no longer have our ears tuned yes. to possible deceptive teaching or what have you. And so we just begin to absorb and, and identify with what they're saying that may influence us more deeply later. Indeed, uh, one of the things I've noticed in um, certain circles is that the word discernment sometimes has been seen as a kind of feeling thing rather than an, an operation of the mind um, assisted by the Holy Spirit. So it's very easy to think, well, this course feels good. I discern that it feels good. But actually, that's not really a biblical view of discernment, which, as you've been implying, is really the, the use of the mind to say, does this actually match up to what the scriptures are actually teaching? Biblical discernment is is grounded in God's Word. Yeah. I, I need to ask you a little bit more about how this came into being, this course, because we, we've touched on it slightly, but I think people need to have a little bit more of a background to this before we get onto the detail of the actual teachings of it. So this course in miracles came into existence, I understand, by this lady, Helen Shookman, and she also had this person who was her scribe, who was helping her, a man called William Thetford. And as we've already said, she claimed to be hearing a voice, which she said was Jesus. And I, I believe the course itself actually says this was Jesus of Nazareth. So could you give us some idea of when this was and how this came about and how the two of them worked with this voice? It was in the early 1970s at Columbia University. And, and Helen Shookman was an atheist and she was having some difficulty with her colleagues. And so as a result, it was quite disturbing to her. And so in trying to find a, a common ground, a common way to relate to her colleagues, she began to enter into some meditative time and, and heard a voice. His voice began speaking to her. And so over a period of time, it was about a seven-year period, as I recall. This was between 1965 and 72, something like that? Yeah. So this voice began speaking to her and told her that she needed to write these things down. And so she began doing so. Ultimately, the voice identified itself as Jesus, a false Jesus, I would say, without question, dictated some 1135 pages of text to her. And I have all of her works published by the Foundation for Inner Peace in, out of California, uh, there's volume one text, and there's a volume two workbook for students, and then there's a teacher's manual and some other writings as well. But William Thetford became one of her scribes, and so she wrote shorthand, and this voice spoke incredibly quick, and so it took a lot of effort to write these messages. 
I saw um, a transcript of an interview with William Thetford from 1984, and he describes this process that was happening with her. And he says that she heard this voice, but he said that it wasn't, he, he couldn't liken it to mental illness because he said it was, it was very controlled. This voice would come to her and she could sit down and almost like a tape recorder playing to her. She could write down this shorthand and then if she wanted to, she could stop and get on with her work and then at a, a later sitting, come back and the voice would just pick up from where it was before. And in his view, this wasn't indicative of mental illness at all. So what's your view of that? Do you think that he's right in that? What would be your explanation of what was going on there? There is such a thing as auto writing where you go into a trance state. And so I believe that she was going into a trance state an altered state of consciousness whereby this entity recognized himself as Jesus of Nazareth and quite assuredly was not, but would overtake her facilities, her capability of writing, Mm -hmm. and would auto-write through her. So she became the medium, the channel by which this information was disseminated. Emmanuel Swedenborg is another example. Edgar Cayce is another example. There are any number of examples of mediums who channeled information from the spirit world or spirit realm. Mm. And, of course, we recognize that Satan himself, or whatever term you may want to use, the adversary of Christian teaching and of Christ himself can manipulate a human condition. I would not go as far as saying that she was possessed, but she allowed her mental faculties, her physical body to be controlled for a time and a season by demonic influences. That's the only answer I have. And of course, we recognize that the apostles, when they wrote scripture, when they wrote their gospels, and of course, the apostle Paul wrote his epistles and so forth, they were influenced by God through the Holy Spirit in giving them understanding But within the demonic realm, it's a taking over. Think of Jay-Z Knight, the medium. James Van Pra is another. I wrote an article regarding his mediumship and his writing. They would go into a trans state, and they would have an alter ego who would translate and transcribe this information. The interesting thing, Julian, is this, and that is that when you study various mediums and their writings and what they say doctrinally, so to speak, they're in agreement. And they're very much in agreement with what we find taught in A Course in Miracles. But when you go to Scripture, when you look at the Gospel writers and and the others who wrote Scripture, they were in agreement as well. There's no contradiction as far as doctrinal issues or matters. And that's true within the context of the New Age occult world, but they're diametrically opposed one to another. And so when you find something like A Course in Miracles and you begin looking at it from a worldview perspective, like, you know, how is God defined? Who is Jesus? How does one attain salvation? Is is salvation attainable? How does man deal with sin? What about afterlife? When you begin to answer those questions and you look at A Course in Miracles and what, how they answer those questions, it's the occult New Age worldview. 
Yes, and uh, well, well, I agree because uh, he was giving the impression very clearly that this was not something natural. He was saying this was not natural to Helen Schuchman to be writing in this kind of way. This was something transcendent. And yet, as you say, it does not fit with the teachings of the historical Jesus of Nazareth, as we have recorded most faithfully, of course, in the gospel tradition. So yes, it has to come from somewhere else. And uh, if it doesn't fit with Jesus' teaching, it can't actually be of God. It can't be of Jesus, even though it claims to be. It must be a supernatural origin in another sense, as you say, a spiritual entity that's not with God's purposes, but is opposed to God's purposes. Now, it's very interesting, I find, that William Thetford himself in that interview plays down the role of religion in both of their backgrounds, and yet he does actually point to something that's common to both of them. Helen's mother apparently had some kind of interest in theosophy and Christian science, and Thetford himself had attended a Christian science Sunday school up to the age of seven. So how significant do you think those early religious influences influences were on them both, even though he says, he gives the impression that they're not that significant. Well, he may give that impression, but I think quite so that they had a real influence. It's interesting to note that those persuasions are very much aligned with what we would look at or identify as the new age occultic worldview today, or a pantheistic worldview. Pan means all, Theism means God, so therefore, it's the idea that God is all. Everything is God. Mm. So would that be true, then, of A Course in Miracles, that that, that is the view of God? God is everything in that course. Yes. And so we are one with God. We are God. The ultimate goal of A Course in Miracles is to recognize this divinity within, that you mm. are part of the divine. There's two analogies given. One is that we are the spark of the, of, of the flame, the fire itself. The fire itself being God, we are a spark. Another analogy is that we're a drop uh, in the ocean. So the ocean is God. We are a drop. And the reality is, within the context of this worldview, if you take that to its logical conclusion, if I'm a raindrop and as I fall into this ocean of nothingness, which we call God then I become totally absorbed within that body of water, thereby losing all identity. My identity becomes truly that of the body of water or their perception of God. And so all created beings, uh, animal as well as human, are part of this divine makeup. And so the miracle is rediscovering this truth. And that's what Oprah Winfrey teaches, that's what Marianne Williamson teaches, that's what Helen Shookman taught in her course, is this idea that, that, that our greatest desire is to become one once again. And of course, this whole idea of atonement, you know, that Jesus came to atone uh, for our sin, the fact that we are separate from God because of sin in our lives. And so Jesus came to atone for that sin that we might once again come back into right relationship with our creator God. But the new age, they break that word up quite differently. They call it at one mint, not atonement, but at one mint. And so this idea that we become at one with God. The root of that word actually is at one mint, but it depends how you conceive of that. Is it a at one in the sense of coming back into fellowship with, or is it at one in a metaphysical sense of actually becoming one in being, which, well, it's obviously a very different thing, and yet it's the same word. 
Absolutely. So when you talk to someone who's embraced A Course in Miracles, who may have a Christian background or upbringing, you have to define terms. You know, when you use the term atonement or at one moment, what do you mean by that? When you talk about salvation, how do we achieve salvation? What do you mean by that? So we need to ask them to give us deeper understanding of the kind of verbiage they're using so we can better understand what they actually believe because not all people who are caught up in A Course in Miracles have a blind acceptance of the teachings of the Course. There's a mishmash, a syncretism of different ideas. The analogy that you used of the water drop uh, entering the ocean there, it all seems to give the impression that the Course is saying that God is really impersonal and that it's not a coming into fellowship, being restored to fellowship with our Creator God, but coming to realize that we are all part of this one. How can that be any kind of relationship whatsoever? This seems to be a completely impersonal thing. You know, it's not about relationship. It's about right understanding. The Course tells us that salvation comes by right understanding. I believe that's on page 600, volume 1. So if we have right thought, right understanding, then we have salvation. It's thought reform. Helen Schuchman makes this comment up you know, early on in her book that this Jesus who speaks through her is basically saying that the goal of the course is to change your thought. The question I would have is change it from what? The whole idea is to change your thought from a biblically sound or biblically based understanding to one that is newly conceived and constructed in the occult New Age pantheistic view. And the, sadly, within the church, Julian, a lot of people have a cross-pollinization of those two extremes. And so that's why you have to ask for the defining of the terms that are used to discern where they are so you can meet them there and lead them into the truth. Absolutely. And that's a call, isn't it, for decent teaching in the churches, which I mean, I often lament here in the UK that we we have very poor teaching. And so I can imagine how things like this can creep in undetected very, very easily. Um, what I want to ask also is how do they deal with Jesus in this system? I mean, you say that he's a, an evolved being in some sense. Who is Jesus? Their understanding is that Jesus is the Christed one. Christ is not a person but an office to be held. In other words, the Christ is the most highly evolved one among us. And so Jesus, because of his evolved status, he then became the only one that could point us in the right direction to becoming more highly evolved ourselves. And so we become highly evolved through psycho-spiritual understanding. And that's a big word to say that we delve into things like meditation, Eastern forms of meditation, I might add, not biblical meditation that we would find in Psalms 1, verse 2, where it talks about meditation being focused on an, an objective truth or the objective truths of Scripture. Where in Eastern forms of meditation and meditation that is highly acceptable and usable within the occult New Age world is extremely subjective. And so, therefore, Truth is not discerned by objective truth, but through experiential understanding, psycho-spiritual technologies that are employed today around the world, mm -hmm. within and without the church, I'm afraid to say. 
Yeah, what you're saying here very much connects with something that Marcia Montenegro said on this program when she was on a couple of months ago. And she, as you, as you may well know, she uh, was at one point an astrologer and she came out and she became a Christian. And she said that when she was involved in meditation back in the day, really, it wasn't, as you say, it wasn't concentrating on something objective like the Word of God or anything like that. But it was really a way of blanking the mind out when she looks back at it now she realizes that's what she was doing she thought she was transcending this realm but actually what she was doing was just blanking out her mind and and no longer being able to discern the differences between things in this world and thought that that was a form of transcendence whereas in fact it wasn't absolutely as a matter of fact a number of years ago i went to a, a large methodist church here in dallas and one of the associate pastors was offering a course called The Spiritual Journey by Father Thomas Keating, a Catholic priest out of Colorado. I received a phone call from a woman in the church, and so I thought, well, I'll go check it out. I went, I bought the book, and I always look at resources at the back of the book. You know, who are they recommending? And, and some of the books that they were recommending were, uh, one, readings from the tarot, tarot cards, so divination, wow. the keys to higher consciousness by keys, and a number of other New Age-oriented books in this spiritual journey text. And so I went to a number of courses and had a video presentation by Keating for about 20 minutes or so. And then the balance of the hour was given over to meditation. And it was an Eastern form of meditation. Of course, what Keating was teaching, as did Montenegro in her time, is to blank out the mind. And so the whole idea is to escape the illusion to escape reality, embrace the unknown, take every thought and you blank it out. And so you use a mantra, losing yourself in mindless thought. It's almost an irony. So as the drop falls into the, to the ocean, it loses self-identity and it becomes absorbed in that nothingness. And so God is not a knowable being, not a personal God. And so the great goal is to deny self and embrace the selflessness of the God self or the inner self or the higher self or any number of terms that are used within different persuasions. In other words, to become nothing. And I don't see any excitement in that, any real desire to become a big nothing. When God desires a relationship with us, you know, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 4, and 5 tells us, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we align our thought process with God's Word. We don't go on our own and make stuff up. And of course, through the process of meditation, ultimately, like the Silva method of mind control, to introduce another idea, Jose Silva of Laredo, Texas, a number of years, decades ago, implemented what he called the Silva method of mind control to blank out the mind, and to take every thought captive to a foreign understanding. So you control your mind, and ultimately you seek a spirit guide to guide you into spiritual truth. And Johanna Michelson's book, The Beautiful Side of Evil, which I mentioned in my article, you know, she was very caught up in the Silva method of mind control. And she asked for two guys. One was Sarah Bernhardt, and the other one was Jesus. And Jesus came and spoke to her, and she accepted it at face value. Later, 
she discovered that this Jesus that she accepted as a spirit guide was anything but the Jesus of the Bible. As a matter of fact, it was a very gruesome, dark being. And so the whole idea of meditation, Eastern forms of meditation, is to connect with the spiritual world, receive a guide to guide you into, quote, spiritual truth, end quote, rather than what the scripture would teach. Yes, it seems to me to be the ultimate deception in many ways, because you think that you're engaging in something metaphysical by doing this. You think that you are metaphysically uniting with the all in some way, but really it's a trick because it's not metaphysical, it's epistemological. You're, it's a mind thing. It's a, your understanding is being overridden. And what you think is transcendence is actually this loss of your critical faculties. And you're being deceived into thinking this is something beyond the, the realm of this world. But all you're doing is as you say, is opening your mind up to any influence whatsoever. You don't know where that influence is coming from, and in many cases that could be damaging. Well, you know, the scripture tells us to test the spirits, questioning whether this spirit identifies Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, and whether he alone is the crucified Savior for mankind. Absolutely, yes, indeed. One thing I want to try to understand with you is what human beings are in this system and i i found within the course this quotation this is an exact quotation in a sense since we were created eternal we literally were never born hence we can never die we've always existed as an extension of god's love the course repeatedly states that we remain as god created us we remain as eternal aspects of spirit and have never been limited by by form it doesn't seem to me to be coherent it says that we're created eternal but that we've never been limited by form so we have no form well i don't really understand what we're supposed to be in the system at all welcome to the club <laughs> you know I, I i don't know if you're familiar with david spangler or not uh i have heard the name yes david spangler wrote a book regarding christ Reflections on the Christ, and in reading his book, it's just a brief book, it's only about 130-some pages, I had to read that book four times because of the illogical aspect of the book. What you just read there from the Course is very commonplace within the New Age occult world, and that is oppositional thought, things that don't make sense. There's no logic, but it sounds good. It sounds engaging. It sounds like some real deep spiritual thought. Absolutely, it does. Do you think there's something going on there that's similar to the kind of thing that the Zen Buddhists would do, and that is to actually employ contradictions like that so that it sort of gets your mind to to get it, you know, to, to experience Satori or whatever they call it, to experience Zen? Do you think there's something of that in this? Yeah, you know, the cone. Yeah, I think so, because it, and that goes back to my, my whole idea related to two worldviews, two opposites. One biblically Judeo-Christian, one New Age occultic. You know, the scripture tells us who the author of confusion is, and it's not the Trinity. Jesus is all about explicitly helping us understand truth. He taught in parables, but those parables were defined ultimately. So there's no question, there's no mystery, so to speak, as far as what orthodox biblical doctrine is but within the the occult new age world it's all about contradictions and confusion 
And so the scripture tells us that Satan himself is the author of confusion. Yes, that makes sense indeed. But when I think we need to clarify that that's not the same as something that is looking at it from a theological point of view, something that's mysterious. For example, I would say that the Trinity is actually a mysterious doctrine in the sense that it is probably beyond our capacities fully to understand it. But that's not to say that it's contradictory. And when here, in this little quotation I had here and something else I'm about to bring up, this seems to be actually celebrating contradiction, which is a rather different thing from dealing with something that has something mysterious about about it due to our lack of capacity fully to understand it absolutely the other thing you see we are told by the course that we are also jesus let me quote it god knows his son as wholly blameless as himself and he is approached through the appreciation of his son christ waits for your acceptance of him as yourself and his wholeness as yours so here i am yeah. talking to you and both of us are jesus Actually, on you just quoted that out of the out of volume one. Volume one also on page five says, "There is nothing about me that is Jesus that you cannot attain." So, in other words, we are the Christed one ourselves. We are the source of our own salvation, and we become the source of our own salvation. We don't need Jesus dying on a cross. Matter of fact, that's a myth. That's illusion for them. But the whole idea that you can become your own salvation by right thought. Yeah, page 136, the recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. And then on page 131, he says, you are unlimited as God is. So there's a number of quotes throughout the text that says that we are quantifiably no different than Christ himself. We are just not as far along in our evolution as he achieved himself. But the interesting thing on page 33, it says, sacrifice is a notion totally unknown to God, end quote. So in other words, God himself did not sacrifice anything. Mm. And so it's, it's a downplay of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf on the cross. And so man is left to save himself. What I'm trying to understand from this is what we're supposed to be saving ourselves from anyway, because the only sense that I can make out of this system is really, it has to be boiled down to just one proposition, and that is that we are God, and everything else seems to be frills. That seems to be the, the basic proposition, and everything else is poetry surrounding that. But then I ask myself, well, what is the problem from which we are supposed to be emancipated? I mean, if I am God, and you are God, and everything is God, then it's not just that there can be no pain or suffering. There can be no you, there can be no me, there can be nothing except God. Therefore, that there is nothing that I need to even change in my thinking. There is no way in which I need to become more evolved like Jesus in a spiritual sense, because there isn't even a, there can't even be a process of evolution, a spiritual evolution. There can't be anything except the bare existence of God, and that's it. So there's nothing to be released from. We are to be released from illusion. But how can there be illusion? The illusion that there is sin, that there's punishment, that there's judgment. Sure. So I, 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 know, I know that's what it's saying, but all that seems to kind of boil down to poetry, because in the end, how can there even be illusion? There doesn't seem to be any problem whatsoever. The whole thing seems to collapse into, well, nothingness. That's the beauty of the illogic of their worldview. And on page 315, yes, the quote is, every illusion is one of fear, whatever form it takes, whether it be an illusion of evil, guilt, sin, or hate. And so every illusion is one of fear, 
So what we're being saved from is this illusion, this fear. And so the Course teaches, and of course Marianne Williamson in her book, A Return to Love, the key word there being love, the Course in Miracles teaches anything that is not love, that is not based in love, is grounded or based in fear. And fear is an illusion. I've talked to many within this worldview, and, and they say, oh, Russ, you're just, you're living in fear. You're, you're fear-based. And so basically what they're saying is that I'm living as if the illusion is real. Because in their worldview, the only thing that's real is heaven, not this yeah. earth. This earth is an illusion. But they would have to admit at some point that the illusion is real. If they say that you're living as if the illusion is real, that is to say the illusion itself is not real. But if the illusion is not real, then there is no illusion. Therefore, there is no problem. In my world, if I'm sitting on a railroad track and a train's coming, I'm still going to be dead. Well, I agree with you. Absolutely. So the illusion just, just took you out. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and so, so, so when you talk to a, a young woman who has been abused, who suffered rape or what have you, a horrible, egregious sin against her body and herself, you know, I would suspect that, that Marianne Williamson would just try to help her understand that this is an illusion. And so, therefore, for the healing to come, she must change how she thinks, which is the whole crux of the Course in Miracles, is to change how we think, how we perceive reality. And so we escape the truth of reality and accept an illusion of that which is not. You see how our adversary has so convoluted thought in how we perceive reality and brought confusion and lack of understanding into man's mind. And his goal, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, is to ultimately destroy us without understanding, without being in right relationship with our Creator God. Well, the last thing that I want to ask, I suppose you've already started to move in this direction, really, is what I'm calling the pastoral issues of this belief system. I mean, one major pastoral thing is, of course, to be concerned about people who are already involved in this and to warn them that this is not a helpful spiritual path to take. But I suspect that many people would brush aside any objection that one might have by saying, well, look, you know, I'm not bothered even if it's not, you know, coming from Jesus. So one might say, well, this isn't the real Jesus. So they say, well, I'm not bothered because what bothers me is whether it works in my life or not. And it does work. You know, you're advising me against this. I've been healed of various problems in my life by it. Maybe I've even been provided for in some astonishing ways through following this teaching. So, you know, why should I listen to what you've got to say? So how would you answer that kind of thing? Well, the new age occult premise is this. If it works, it's good. If it's good, it's of God. And the reality is that not everything that appears on the surface to be good is of God. You know, look at Job. You know, what about others within biblical teaching, you know, who, who suffered great harm and great evil? And it was certainly not good. Now, a good outcome was delivered as a result because of Job's faithfulness and his obedience. The real issue, Julian, is this, and that is this whole a Course in Miracles teaching, this whole genre of occultism and so forth, is acceptable and largely acceptable to people within the church who lack discernment, who are nominal in their faith, because it does not call for repentance. It does not call 
for one to become a servant, and it does not call for one to be obedient to an authority beyond themselves. The whole idea of A Course in Miracles and occult teaching in general or the New Age in general is that you get to remain in charge. You get to stay on the throne of your life, so to speak. Now, for people in the church or outside the church, the real issue is you may be inoculated against the deception of it personally. But trust me, at some point you're going to know someone within or without the fellowship of Christ perhaps a work associate, someone that you're in relationship with, who may become a victim of this kind of teaching. Now, as a Christian, our desire is for Christ to be known. Mm. And so if that's our call, if that's our goal, then we need to be informed, as you are informing your audience, of the dangers of this kind of teaching to help them become better discerners of truth because the enemy is shooting the fiery darts of deception, misunderstanding, confusion at us daily. And so if we're going to survive that warfare, then we need to be informed so we can help others come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and his claim upon their lives, that they might come into right relationship with him. So therefore, it has direct importance for us to have that understanding. You give one example in that article that you wrote about this. I think you wrote that actually about 20 years ago. I don't know whether you have other examples to add to it now. Of I think it was a couple who had got involved with the course, and then they found actually that there was a certain time in their life where they became powerless. They thought that this course was giving them tremendous power and freedom, but they came to a point of spiritual opposition, a spiritual oppression, and they couldn't deal with it. And it was only coming to faith in Christ and praying in the name of Jesus that they found freedom from this oppression. Have you encountered that sort of thing very much. Oh, yes, and you're referencing Warren and Joy Smith. As a matter of fact, I was doing an interview with Warren recently. He's in California and was very much a student of the Course in Miracles. He and his wife both, and she suffered great depression. And so he went to a local bookstore, found Johanna Michelson's book, The Beautiful Side of Evil, and discovered in her writing how to confront the adversary by praying in Jesus' name and taking claim over yourself and your loved ones and your family in the name of Jesus and to cast out or discharge any demonic influence in their lives and the lives of their family. They were trying everything that they could try in relationship to their understanding of the Course and what the Course of Miracles taught, but to no avail. Nothing happened. It got worse. And so they were operating out of love, you know, sending, you know, love messages to the one that was tormenting them and so forth and so on. And so as a result of reading Johanna Michelson's book and employing her teaching, they prayed in the name of Jesus and cast out this demonic influence and it fled, as scripture tells us. And so as a result, they gained victory. For the first time in their lives, they saw spiritual victory at their greatest point of need. And in doing so, they began a whole new quest for their spiritual lives and growth and understanding. And they are born-again solid believers today as a result of that experience. They weren't even Christians, but God heard that prayer. Why did he hear that prayer and no other prayer? 
because it was prayed in Jesus' name. It caught his attention. And this is a fascinating thing, actually, in itself. And I think we need to point out that when we say in Jesus' name, this isn't a magical thing. We're not saying, oh, you just use the name of Jesus and it doesn't really matter what you you believe about this historical person, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. When you use the name, you're actually, you're invoking the actual person. And so God wishes to testify to the the reality and the truthfulness of his Messiah. So it is all bound up with the correct belief in him as well, isn't it? It's the idea that we are coming into alignment with his will. And what is God's will for us? That we come into right relationship, that we receive his salvation. When we pray in his name, we are coming into alignment with his will. And will he not perform his will? Absolutely. So when we come into alignment, he hears us, number one. Number two, we submit our will to his will. Does he want to save us? Does he want to deliver us from evil? Absolutely. He will answer that prayer. So it's not a mantra. It's not a a magical word. As some within the New Age would use the name of Jesus as a mantra to set up an altered state of consciousness to blank out the mind. Some actually use the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus to set up an altered state of consciousness. It's not the word. It's any word. It's any mantra. So we can't use Jesus' name as a talisman, so to speak, but only within the context of opening his will. Yes, yes. And God will use that whole process there to draw us to himself. And as you say, he will answer that prayer because that's his intention to draw us to himself. Absolutely. Now, that kind of uh, example there of that couple who experienced release through praying in that way is a great example for people if we're actually trying to encourage uh, people not to get involved uh, with this course or to sever themselves from involvement in this course. But if we don't have an example like that, I mean, I could use your example and say it's somebody else who wouldn't have a same force because I don't know the people concerned. So could you give some general advice as to how people can speak to those who may be involved in this course? I mean, obviously not the right way to go about it is to say, look, this is a great deception. You know, this is all of the devil and that kind of thing. So could you give us some advice as to how perhaps to go about this? Well, what you just outlined there would be the way not to proceed. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine some people doing it, though. (laughs) Yes, I'm afraid so. As a matter of fact, I used to be one of them. 1 Peter 3.15 gives us a roadmap. 1 Peter 3.15 basically says to always stand ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, comma, yet doing so with gentleness and reverence. There's the key. So we are to be gentle with the person's spirit and to reverence who they are as a creation in God's image. In other words, we're to love them, to desire their best, to care for them, to help them recognize the fact that they have an undiscernible need. Discernible for you, but possibly undiscernible, very likely undiscernible for them. So first off, help to clear the air, to clarify ideas, to discern their worldview, to to ask them worldview questions. Well, I would be interested to know uh, how you perceive God. Who is God to you? Who is Jesus? Do you believe there's an afterlife? If so, uh, what do you believe about the afterlife? And in so doing, when they respond, that gives you an opportunity to respond in like kind, yet gently and reverently, according to 1 Peter 3.15. 
and to always give a defense. That is, we need to know something. We need to know our own faith. We, we need to have a testimony that's life-giving. And, and in this process, sometimes I found that people who may be on the margins or may not have a full understanding of their faith, it helps them define their faith more deeply and trust by prayer through the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will give you the right questions to ask to help them gain better and a deeper understanding, not only of their own faith, but of what biblical orthodoxy looks like and how their faith may or may not align with that. And chances are it won't, but it may at some point, and where there is commonality between their understanding and what Scripture teaches, that becomes a point to launch further discussion. It's a process. It's not going to take place over a mere moment or two. It's going to take place through a relationship over time. Absolutely. I find it very interesting that uh, you say it should be centered in asking people questions. I think that's very important because it's so easy to presume that we know, we assume, we know what that person thinks. And by asking questions, as you say, it clarifies that. And it also shows that you respect that person as well. So I think it's very important. Absolutely. A number of years ago, I did a radio interview here in, in Dallas, in the Dallas area. And it was on A Course in Miracles, actually. Mm-hmm. And a, a woman called and uh, missed her call. The program was over, but, but she found me on the web and she discovered that I was local. And so she'd grown up Baptist. In college, she left her faith. For 32 years, she had been involved in Unity Church, Arlington, over in the Fort Worth area. She and her husband and two daughters caught up in Unity Church, Arlington, for 32 years. And there came a crisis in the church of leadership and a lot of infighting and so forth. And so she began questioning things and thought, well, you know, if unity is all about love, peace, harmony, and happiness, how can this be? So she did a, a Google search and found my article on a Unity School of Christianity, read my article and thought, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. And then she discovered that I was local, so she called me, and I went and met with her and some other women who had some concerns about what was going on in their church. That was seven years ago. I still meet with her and her husband. As a matter of fact, I'm discipling her husband now. I have been for just over a year. But I discipled her for five years. It, it was a long-term process. Now, she grew up Baptist in her young years, so she had something to tie back to. In the U.K., sadly, and to some degree here in the States, a lot of people are growing up unchurched. They have no foundation. They're, at least with this woman, I could call back to her early remembrances of, of reading the Bible and going to church and so forth. So it's even more difficult, but it's not impossible. And so as we rely upon the gifting of the Holy Spirit in our lives with discernment and understanding, coming to a place where we're able to craft questions that penetrate the spirit and the mind. My goal in asking questions is to get the individual I'm talking to to think for themselves. Because people caught up in A Course in Miracles, they begin to think that way. The Course in Miracles becomes the prism by which they view reality. And so you've got to break that. And the only way to do that is to help them think independently. What do you think? Not what does the Course espouse. What do you think? I'm interested in knowing what you believe about X, Y, Z. And that shows respect. You're right. 
but it also helps them come to a place in their lives to where they are honored that someone cares about what they think. And it also brings them out of that kind of mind control situation that the course has brought them into, yes. And once we have helped them come to that place, that gives you permission to respond. Because once they express what they believe, that sets up an opportunity for them to desire what you may think about a given issue. And then in loving care, with gentleness and respect, you can answer them in a way that would point them to their Savior. That is absolutely brilliant advice, actually. And a lot of the things that you say there connect very much with the kinds of things that Marcia was saying to us on the program. A very similar kind of approach, which seems very sensible and uh, very loving. And uh, I'm sure it's the right way to go about that. And thank you very much for, for sharing that with us. Um, could you lead people in the direction of the kinds of resources that you have to help people at uh, Christian Information Ministries? Well, of course, my article's on my website. I've written a number of things uh, for Probe over that 20-year time that I was with them at probe.org. My website is christianinformation.org, or I can be reached at russwise.org. But I've written on a number of things. I haven't written on everything that I would like to have written on. I would have liked to have written on dozens of more things by this point, but I have not. And there are a team of you at the Christian Information Ministries, I understand. Yeah, there's a few of us, and we have different expertise. My greatest desire is to help people stay uh, on track, to not be derailed. And so to help people with good information, to help them think more clearly, more biblically about whatever issue they may be wrestling with. And so I have quite a library of occult literature, et cetera, et cetera, that I've read and gleaned over the last 35 plus years. So it's got a twofold. One, to help the believer maintain their faith, to deepen their faith, to where they better understand their faith. And to help them become ambassadors for God's truth in sharing their faith with others. And then lastly, for those who are outside the faith, to call them to right understanding, where they've been trafficking in deception and false teaching or false understanding to where they might come to the truth of God's word in his gospel. Marvellous. And would you encourage people who may be um, wanting to reach somebody who's involved in any of these kinds of things that you've been talking about, would you encourage people to get in contact with you perhaps uh, through your website or directly by email? Absolutely. Uh, I spend a great deal of time answering email. As a matter of fact, my ministry these days is largely engaged in email traffic and answering email and helping people coming to a better understanding of their situation and how to resolve it rather than uh, through letter writing or traveling. Presence on the web is absolutely a must. It's imperative to be in this kind of ministry these days. So largely beyond that, my ministry revolves around discipleship. I'm engaged in discipling a number of men throughout the week, mm-hmm. helping them come to a better understanding of their faith and the claim that Jesus Christ has on their lives, that they might live in right relationship with their Creator God, that they might live as redeemed people. Great work. Well, I'm very grateful to you for coming on the program, um, especially since you're just about to pack, to leave, to come over here to the UK. As you said, that's extremely ironic. Uh, But it's been great talking to you, and thank you for 
well, at least giving me some idea of how to understand this course in miracles. It's not an easy thing to understand at all because it really does border on the incoherent. So trying to to see at least some kind of image that makes some kind of sense of it was very helpful. Thank you for having this conversation. And it very clearly does indicate to me that this is a deception, that really it's all about confusion. It's all about blanking out the mind and making people unable to hear the true gospel and hear the true Jesus. So thank you for helping us understand what's going on here with this system of belief and also for giving us advice on how to approach people who may be caught up in it as well. I think that was excellent advice. I think everybody will see that that approach that you delineated there is really the best way of going about it. Thanks ever so much for being with us on the program. Thank you so much. And let me just leave one last thought. And that is, A Course in Miracles is like many other avenues into the occult. And that is that what A Course in Miracles does, Julian, is this. And that is it attempts to inoculate us against the truth of Scripture. It inoculates us to where when we do hear the truth, it's diminished. It's negated. And I am greatly appreciative of this opportunity to be with you today. And I trust that your ministry will have every opportunity to hit its mark. Bless you. And bless you as well. Thank you ever so much for coming on. I hope you have a great time in the UK when you come across very soon. We are looking forward to it for a great trip. Hope to meet you sometime. That will be marvelous. Great. Thanks ever so much, Russ, for coming on. Great pleasure to speak to you. Amen. Amen.